And so now the mutineers who are prisoners aboard the Pandora are locked inside a sinking ship with the guy that was supposed to get them out. Holy crap. And some of them weren't mutineers. <laughs> exactly. History. I'd like to follow me. Welcome back to Hilf. History, I'd like to fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody. Delighted, as always, to be coming to you from The Den. That's the Deluxe Edition Network. To find more great podcasts in The Den, click the link in our show notes or go to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Now, this is part two of The Mutiny on the Bounty with author and school teacher Scott Edwin Williams. And in part one, we met the crew of the bounty, we fell in love with dreamy mutineer Fletcher Christian, and then, like everybody else, we learned to hate that brutal fuck Captain William Bly, and we watched him and his sad sack crew of 18 as as they were packed into that open-air boat and then pushed out to sea, (laughs) where most of them survived a harrowing journey across thousands of miles back to England. Holy shit. (laughs) Now today... We catch up with the ones we left behind. Find out what happened to those who chose to stay in Tahiti, to those who were captured, what? And of course the fate of the smokestack himself. Fletcher Christian, who sets out in search of a whole new life and actually finds it. (laughs) Let's get started. Hi, how you doing, Dawn? Hi, welcome back. We're talking over an ocean and many time zones away. And light bulb moments in human history, so good. It's a right now two series. Are you going to make it a more? Is there going to be a third book in the series? Oh, yeah. Look, there's, there's, there's going to be probably end up being five books. Because <laughs> the, the way it works is the first book took like, like probably 50 million years because it went from cavemen to the end of the Roman Empire. The second book is like the Middle Ages, is from the Middle Ages to the Scientific Revolution, which is about a thousand years. The third book, because of the speed of human achievement, the third book's going to take up probably about 50 years. So wow. I'm going to have to, uh, it's going to end up being, like you get to the 20th century, it's going to be a, like a book of every decade. I don't think I'm going to manage that, but... Uh, yeah, it's it, it it actually is in, like a an illustration of how human knowledge is, you know, doubling, quadrupling, so so regularly. Yeah, so it's very much a um, yeah, it's it'll be godness how many books. <laughs> oh, good. Well, hopefully, just keep doing it, man. It, people, you know, well, as people are eating them, keep feeding them. Exactly. <laughs> you're reading the first book in your series the light bulb moments in mm. human history which is cave to Colosseum. it says that you'll be entertained and along the way you'll find answers to questions such as why did the sumerians have temple prostitutes just how mm. psychotic was the god of the old testament why did parents in ancient greece encourage their young sons to take older male lovers and what on earth inspired the Mayans to have tobacco enemas? <laughs> I mean, Scott, 
I mean, these are the burning questions I answer these, in my books. I think. I mean, you are just. Have you ever? I can, I don't know. Maybe you're the most perfect guest I've ever had. I as I know you're kind of a fan, so I hope that curls your toes. But I don't know how peanut butter yeah. and jelly. You know, somebody was like, "Well, that's it." We don't have to find something better to go with peanut butter. We just found it. Um, but I do want to know, I have to know, the answer to one of these. And I've chosen, would you please tell us, why did parents in ancient Greece encourage their young sons to take older male lovers? Okay. Well, it was basically um, a kind of, it was called pet, uh, pederastic mentoring. So basically you would... Sure. <laughs> Yeah, so you 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 would get a an older guy who would um, teach your your son the ways of the world, the politics and war and everything, and they would they would sort of take them under their wing and do other things. But um, yeah, ba basically in you know ancient Greece, uh, that wasn't a, that wasn't a problem. Like I, sure. I go out of my way to point out that. Uh, you know, it put nowadays it would be considered statutory rape, but in those Certainly. days, it, it was it was doable. It was normal. It was to our minds weird, but yeah, they they didn't want. In fact, they had um, a, a slave. The parents would would give their son a slave. They called the pedagogos. Pedagogos, I think. I can't pronounce it correctly. But basically, this slave, his job was to fend off all the lecherous. Um, men who weren't quite of the right caliber to be the huh. uh, sort of older boyfriend. Sure. That was his, so that they was their sort job. of swiped left. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> on, on their behalf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that wow. was the thing. <laughs> wow. That I mean, it's it's uh it's fascinating. There's there's so much about uh sexualized power relationships throughout history that are mm. yeah amazing and especially when you go back to be like well this is the culture for which we are getting all of our best political ideas about democracy and such um but we can all we can pick out the stuff we we don't well, well like democracy anymore. in in greece lasted for about 170 years which is a blip yep absolutely so it didn't last that long. We've, we've managed to make it last a little bit longer this time. Hopefully we can keep it going, but, you know. Yeah, go team. There are some concerns. Go team. I think go there are team. some concerns. <laughs> I think, yeah, we can do it. I think that I, I, I am definitely a cheerleader um, for this one. And it is tough, as, as you've noted, as a, as a student of history. It's, it's hard to maintain optimism in a way, but it is also rich with examples of survival and the issue is the micro macro right you talk about mm. big history in your book yeah. and how it's sort of a recent thing that we've been um able to sort of back way up and widen our, yeah. our lens out and be like well let's trace what happened from like colonization to you know contemporary american let and you can see sort of the movements and the tides of history and that is yeah. incredibly useful but i think it would be a mistake for people who say that's the only thing we should be looking at let's ignore the minutia because these big swells are the ones we should be thinking about and we shouldn't do that if for no other reason than of course our human lifespans are the minutia and that's yeah. always going oh. to be the great irony you know 
they, they, all, all the, the history you want to fuck is the minutiae. You mm. don't want to, the, the, the big history is like, it's interesting and it shows you, you know, movements over long periods of time, but it isn't interesting no. from the point of view of you don't get the human stories. Yeah, you go, the colonists arrive and then they moved west. You're like, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. That's why I like to tell you that William Bly came out dick first. From <laughs> It's important to me that you know that he was naked. I think that's really critical. Yeah. And, and indeed, we are going to go from that big wide lens back down zoop, onto mm. our uh, crew of mutineers aboard uh, the bounty. And when last we yes. met, we had met our cast of characters. We met the lead mutineer and former gentleman, Fletcher Christian. We met cunty Captain Bly, who's just <laughs> bad at everything, except it turns out for navigating ships through anything. Um, mm. and, uh, and then we followed Bly and his loyalists in that little boat man across the open ocean eating biscuits and trying not to poop on each other for <laughs> so long. And, Probably uh, filing. Ind indeed. And, uh, and now we conclude our tale uh, with what happened to the mutineers who were last seen dancing and jeering aboard the bounty, probably shaking their tattooed butt cheeks. <laughs> now, the first person, the first individual to see these mutineers ever again is the individual who is sent from London to pursue the mutineers, to hunt them down. And this man's name is Edward Edwards. Captain Eddie Edwards. It's a real name. I cannot believe what cruel person would name their child Edward Edwards. And it's 10 days because William Bly comes ashore in London. And London's like, what the fuck? Are you fucking serious? And of course, he tells his side of the story, which is terrible. Oh, yeah. And 10 days later... Captain Edward Edwards is aboard Her Majesty's Pandora to go round up these fucking mutineer fucks. Not on our watch. <laughs> King George has been through enough. And we're going to bring these guys right into justice. And his first stop, very logically, is to go to Tahiti. It's where we last saw him. It's where they're most likely to be. If nothing else, we'll find the trail. And the idea is... They're not going to be hard to spot among the indigenous no. population. They can hardly blend in. And even if they have become like, uh, you know, real fundamental members of society, we got a ton of stuff to trade and bribe. We're going to find these fucking mm. guys if they're there. Yeah. yeah. Edward Edwards is shocked, however, to find that he gets within sight of Tahiti and out in the canoes come the mutineers. And they get on board like, hi, wow, we saw you guys, and we're so glad you're here because we couldn't fit in the boat. Remember when we were talking about how many people were like, I don't want to be a part of this mutiny, but I can't, I, there isn't room for me in the boat. And they're like, where are the guys couldn't? And they can hardly get their sentence out. And old Eddie Edwards has them in shackles, slaps them a few times, and puts them in, in restraints. Because he's like, I've been ordered to treat each and every one of you as mutineers. And and just as he's sort of explaining this, <laughs> and their faces are kind of going, wait, what? 
two more canoes come out with a couple more mutineers like, wait for us. <laughs> we can't wait to tell Go our side. Go away. Of this. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and the, they, they think they're saved for a hot minute because they look over the shoulder and they see this guy, Tommy Hayward. And they're like, oh, thank God, Thomas Hayward. Oh, thank God, because he was there. He got in the boat with Bly. He witnessed the whole thing. He would be the ones who could say, Fletcher Christian had a gun on us. He told us we couldn't get in the boat. We were totally like, please don't. He'll he'll vouch. So they're like, Thomas, remember? And Thomas Hayward just shrugs. Goes, I don't know if I remember it, actually. It's hard to say. <laughs> what a dick. <laughs> what a dick. Exactly. And they are like, boy, don't think this guy gets the right act, too. They're like, fuck. Eventually, and with, again, not much difficulty, Eddie Edwards rounds up about 10 of the mutineers. And they tell him, right? We separated. There are more mutineers, but we separated from them. We're the ones who stayed here. And he goes, okay, where did they go? And they're like, we don't know. Are you nuts? Look around. (laughs) No, nobody knows. And they are kept in jail. They have wet hammocks. They're given no food. They have a constant guard. But then even that becomes like Edwards doesn't feel good about it. And so still at anchor in Tahiti while they're looking to see if there's more. Edward Edwards builds what's known as Pandora's box, which is an 18 foot by 11 foot prison. That's five meters by about three and a half ish meters. It holds 14 guys. Everyone's chained up inside. He had it custom built on deck of the Pandora. There's two tiny holes for ventilation, but even those are covered with iron bars. So it's like, halves the airflow you know and um, you have to crawl through the small ass hole to get in there there's no shade so you cook your ass in the sun there's no cover you soaked in the fucking rain they're given next to nothing to eat there's two buckets to shit in and they're just guarded constantly and these guys sitting there for two months before they even leave Tahiti right then they hit they go out and, and Edwards is looking for Fletcher Christian, right? That's the guy mm. that everybody yeah, yeah. knows was the one that we got to get. And eventually he looks around the island hops for a minute. He's like, never mind. We're going to head on, head on back to London, get these guys to meet their fate. And he runs aground on the Great Barrier Reef <laughs> and the Pandora starts to fucking sink. Now get this, Scott. The ship hits the reef, starts to sink, and I don't know if it's because the irons weren't great or part of the impact or whatever, but a few of the prisoners in Pandora's box managed to like get out of their irons, mm-hmm. and the captain orders them to be reshackled. The boat is still sinking, still sinking, and he's thinking they're bailing out water, and he's like, lock them up. Finally, they realize that the boat is lost. There's no, this ship is going to absolutely submerge. And at the very last minute, he says, okay, you can let them out. And this guy, the, the armorer's assistant is like, fuck, yes, right? And he gets down there and he opens yeah. up the thing and he crawls through that tiny ass door and he gets his keys and he starts to unshackle everybody so they can get out. Yeah. Yeah. And while he's in there, some asshole... Whether they were worse than Edwards, who knows, closes the hatch behind him on a sinking fucking ship. And then he gets knocked off the ship. And so now 
The mutineers who are prisoners aboard the Pandora are locked inside a sinking ship with the guy that was supposed to get them out. Holy crap. And some of them oh. weren't mutineers. <laughs> exactly. So now they're like, oh my fuck, we're dying, we're drowning. This is how it goes. And as they're drowning, can we just hear it for you talk about the light bulb moments, the minutiae? One of these wonderful human beings, a sailor, we don't know where he comes from and we don't know where he goes to. <laughs> William Malter, just a young sailor, appears through those fucking bars on the top and says, I will yeah. die and drown with you. I'm going to keep working on this. And he is hacking at those doors and he's working on them hinges. And wow. in the meantime, our guy inside is like, okay. And he continues to unshackle everybody. And yep. in an incredibly dramatic moment, just as Pandora is about to completely submerge, William Moulter gets the hatch hacked off and the mutineers are able to jump to freedom in the water. Oh, holy fuck. Now, that doesn't make any of the movies. Well, actually, I think the, the 1935 movie, they don't have Edward Edwards. They, they, they say Captain Bly's come back to do it. In the movie, so you know what's fascinating is not only does Captain Bly have nothing to do with this rounding up of the mutineers, he is presently at this same time <laughs> on the second breadfruit expedition because <laughs> probably to make up for the fact that this was totally not his fault and you're totally a great captain mm. and the Admiralty has complete faith in you. They did pretty much turn him around. You're a great guy. You're a great guy. Get on out there and get that breadfruit, though, for real, because we need it. Um, but after the Pandora crashes on, on the Great Barrier Reef and they all manage to get themselves to shore, Captain Edwards does a head count and realizes that he has lost 35 of his men and four of, them, of the prisoners are also dead. One of them didn't quite get out of his shackles in time and a couple mm. other drowned. But that means that there's six of them still alive. And he, Eddie Edwards, doubles down, ties him up, leaves him out in the hot sun on that beach, doesn't give him anything to drink. He kind of seems like people are like he's like blaming the whole thing on them. And now he's got, and ironically, the same pickle that our guy William Bly had, which he's got a tow his ass up the coast <laughs> north over the little uh, doohickey on the north of Australia and then get his took us up to Timor to Cape, Cape York let's go the little nipple on the top of your country I'm sure you're <laughs> and and get up there to Timor and catch a dusty a Dutch Indian we get it we've seen this and the hilarious thing is that for that cunt Hayward it's the second time he's done it. <laughs> he was with. It's like Groundhog Day. <laughs> yeah, Captain shrugs a lot. Is all of a sudden like, oh my god, maybe it's me. But they finally get, and there's all this horse shit. They aren't given any quills, and finally they get to like someone cares about their humanity and something like justice. So lawyers come yeah. out, and they're able to get pens and paper, and they're able to write down their side yeah. of things. And eventually, oh, and don't forget, Eddie Edwards has to be court-martialed and answer for what the fuck happened to Pandora, <laughs> because pretty much everyone <laughs> agrees that he fucked that up, that that was on him. Mm. Um, but he's acquitted, of course, because that would be embarrassing for the Admiralty. Yeah. But we've got now these 10 
uh, uh, let's see, 10, yeah, we've got now these 10 mutineers that survived to come home for justice, mm. okay? And at the end of what amazing trial, very exciting, two of them are found guilty but pardoned by King George right. III. Four of them are just fully acquitted, including our blind fiddler, <laughs> Burn. Well, thank, thank God for that. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, I mean, I don't think I helped with the mutiny. <laughs> I can't be certain I did. I don't think so. I didn't mean to. Um, and then there were... Uh, one guy was convicted, but his conviction is discharged because of a technical irregularity. I wish I could tell you more about that. I don't know. <laughs> and then three, Scott, of these sad sacks are found guilty and hanged without mercy. Ellison Burkett and Millwood. And they got them a Royal Navy hanging, which is special. Because they right. don't, there's no uh, short drop <laughs> with a quick stop. Oh, okay. There's no drop. They basically hoist you up. And the idea is that they watch a long, prolonged choking that is meant to make you suffer and make the people watching go, ooh, I, whatever he did, I'm never going to do that. No way. <laughs> Absolutely not. Mm. Bloody hell. Bloody up, right? So now it's done. So these mutineers are dead, and and slowly, slowly, things start bubbling up in newspapers and in the mumblings among high-ranking people within Her Majesty's Navy, because a lot of these officers are like Fletcher Christian, respected gentlemen, whose word mm. is un taken to be truth, whose parents are advocating for them in very powerful circles. And they start to dish, and they start to say, oh, <laughs> here's why the mutiny happened. Bly mm. sucks. Fletcher Christian yeah. shouldn't have done it, but it was not all of his fault. Um, one of the guys writes while he's in prison a, a little uh, account that is, like, secretly published and passed among some of the, like, higher up. It's called Vidi Eschio, which is Latin for I saw and I know. And it's just like, ooh, in the room where it happened kind of stuff. Very kinky. <laughs> well, before all this, um, before, uh, before on their way back, Bly had rushed his version into publication. Which is why when he comes back after all of this stuff, he kind of steps back on shore in London and is like, I feel it's chilly. I feel like everyone... <laughs> is looking at me a little bit different than they were looking at me you when You used I left. to love me, and now... Right. And he, of course, immediately is like, oh, please, of course they're saying that it was me because they are trying to save their own lives. They're trying to preserve their dignity. And the argument, the most apparent argument then and now, is that if any of these mutineers in London at the time wanted to save their lives... The one and only quick way to do that would be to throw Fletcher Christian under the bus. To be like, mm. yeah, I wouldn't have done anything. Fletcher Christian put a gun to my head and said, if I didn't do it, he'd shoot me in the head. And that would make it a lot better for you. But they actually, during trial, were like, yeah, it was totally Fletcher Christian's fault, but he was having like the worst time. <laughs> <laughs> he was under a lot of stress. <laughs> when I look at it from just like, a governmental position and i know that 
this is part of the reason why monarchies are a bad idea. Mm. But we have these 10 mutineers. 10 of them are arrested in Tahiti, imprisoned, wrecked in Pandora, brought back to London for trial. Three are put to death and seven more continue to pay taxes. <laughs> like, does that seem like, why? Mm. Like what the, the expense and the effort and the manpower that Her Majesty's Navy exercised in order to punish. Because you've got to remember that sailing to the other side of the world then was like a moonshot. I mean, you didn't do that lightly. It was expensive mm. and it was a long time, and a lot of lot of drama involved. It, it, to, to send somebody out, that would have cost a fortune to just to um, provision that ship, put a ship out there, the, the Pandora, I mean. It's insane. Yeah. So, like, if, yeah. It is. I mean, you think about it like if NASA spent everything they spend on a launch to get 10 guys to go up to the International Space Station yeah. and arrest a guy for cheating at cards with the Russians. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just to kill him or just to say, oh, our bad, you aren't yeah. guilty. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, but I think that it also, as ridiculous as it is, it also is really illuminating because when you can sort of sense the systemic oppression of classes and of mm -hmm. all of the little hierarchies that exist within a hierarchy, you do kind of understand the pressure that Fletcher Christian would have been under simultaneously feeling like a Superman because he's a gentleman yep. and the systemic oppression of like a bad captain and really what they are able to do. It's, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I know we're stepping back a little bit, but um, that, that kind of those people then rocking up to have been oppressed by it, like a class system, suddenly rocking up to Tahiti, where it's like a hippie commune, free love and everything. That must have been mind-blowing for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, and really, that is where we will go next, my friend, because when we come back from this uh, short break, we are going to answer a question that was a permeating mystery for for decades, which is where did Fletcher Christian go and where is the bounty when we come back? <laughs> this podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. Well, shipmates, before we go in search of Fletcher Christian, a moment please to recognize my treasured crew, my patrons, who, unlike that of the bounty, are whipped only when they've truly pleased the captain. <laughs> Raise your cutlasses to the newest member of our crew, Natalie B. 
She is part of a valued group that ensure that no one sells you dick cream or NFTs during our hilfs. <laughs> Natalie also has access to bonus content, like me reading the first letter that William Bly wrote home to his wife after the mutiny, describing to her what happened and how it was totally not his fault. <laughs> Check out what's what at patreon.com slash podcast. Then head over to Instagram and follow me, follow me, follow me, follow. I like that you put booze in your coffee. I think it's the yin-yang all in one. Well, I, I don't normally do that, I have to say, but in this case I felt like it didn't feel right to do a, a, a hill without <laughs> drinking something. Where we left off with our mutineers, because we already fucked the ones who were captured by Edward Edwards and the Pandora. Yep. And when those mutineers had canoed out <laughs> to him with that rosy optimism, right, they said to him, truthfully, we do not know where the other mutineers are, right? We split with them. There's about 12 other guys, including Fletcher Christian, and we have not seen them in about two and a half years. We yeah. can't tell you. But we know, you and I now know, about yeah. not only the time that all of the mutineers spent together before they split... But then what happened to Fletcher Christian and the mutineers that followed him? So we had talked a little bit about how there's that moment of like intaking breath after Bly disappears from sight. And they're just like, okay, um, <laughs> now, now what are now, we going to do? And Now what are we going to do? And not all of them were happy with the situation. There were a lot of very reluctant hmm. folks on board who were like, fucking great. Now what are we going to do? <laughs> and, um, and, and, and our guy, Fletcher Christian, starts a very democratic, very American voting, egalitarian way of doing things aboard the bounty. One of the very hmm. first things is, and, and also this is very common aboard pirate ships, I am not mm. your captain. We are voting. Everybody has a vote mm. here. And, and one of the ways that they sort of visually emphasize that is Fletcher Christian has a bunch of the sails made into uniforms. And one of the first things that these uniforms give them is comfort. <laughs> They're able to actually move around and they don't stink and they feel better. And they are, per the name, uniform they are all the same. Yeah. It just reinforces that we all sleep the same. We eat the same. We, we, they took everything that was left behind and divided it equally among everybody who was there, mm. whether they had participated in the mutiny or not. Um, mm. And they throw all the breadfruit overboard. Fuck this stuff. Because <laughs> <laughs> screw that shit. <laughs> Fuck this stuff. We haven't been sleeping. We haven't been able to stretch our legs because of these goddamn plants. You can't even smoke this. Sh what are we doing? <laughs> and, uh, and the next uh, section in their adventure I call Taboo He Said... She said, it's a terrible joke. I was trying, you have very clever titles of your chapters and I was trying to be adorable, but I don't think it works. Um, this is the island of Tubwa'i and Tubwa'i 
is the first visible kind of closest island, and they're not going to go directly back to Tahiti because not, they're obviously not afraid of being caught by the English yet, but the Tahitians were friendly with Bly. Like, and part of the friendship yeah. with Bly relies on them trying to be friends with England. So there's reason to believe that if the Tahitians know that these are mutineers, they would take them prisoner if only to appease their English trading partners, you know? Well, apparently Bly told the Tahitian king that he was Captain Cook's son because they wanted to know where Cap where's Captain Cook. Right. We loved him. Bly didn't want to tell him that Captain Cook had been killed in, in Hawaii. So he said, oh, Captain Cook, he couldn't come, but I'm his son and I'm okay. here to sort of, you know. Yeah, he said he remembered you and that you were the, his favourite. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He has to do that because, yeah, the loyalties of the people of Tahiti were clear, which is sort of yet another reason to like wonder why Captain Edward Edwards would have come down so hard on the mutineers that were living very openly in Tahiti. Because part of the reason why they mm. were able to do that is because they had made it clear we weren't a part of it. We were the guys who didn't mm. want to do that, you know? Um, yeah. But Fletcher Christian knows better. He knows that by any way you slice it, this yeah. one's on me, girl. And the ones who are with me have <laughs> like, you know, figured out which line in the sand they're on. So we can't go to Tahiti. So they go to the island of Tubuahi. And the uh, Tubuahi is a little bit like the uh, volcano island where they're like, pass, hard pass. Let, let we know what happens <laughs> when you white pricks come aboard. It is bad. It is all bad. It's absolutely not. And they are stoning them and they're saying no. But for some reason, Fletcher Christian really has a hard on for Dubois. And he's like, I just really think this is where we need to go. So he like sneaks around the other side of the island where there's less people and less rocks. And they literally sneak yeah. aboard, like sneak ashore and they kind of make trails. And they ultimately... Between bribing and they have guns, of course, guns are a very big deal. They're able to yeah. build what they call Fort George there in Tabuahi. And they call it, right. which is great, it's a very apropos name because Fort George is like, just let the record show Fort George, named after King George III, because I did not mutiny against King George III. I love King George III. King George III is my guy. He's a great guy. <laughs> I, I mutinied against William Bly. Everybody write that down. Fort George. I love the king. You know, yeah, He's the asshole. That's right. So, And also, their numbers have grown. If you remember, we got like 12 mutineers. Um, but or about we have about twenty five mutineers, but they had to do enough running around to like get their stuff. That they now also have nine women that they've picked up in Tahiti, including Fletcher Christian's mm -hmm. new girl. Her name I'm gonna I tried really hard to find a pronunciation of it. I couldn't. You can get a lot of pronunciations online, but I'm gonna do my best. Yeah. Her name is Mauautua. But Fletcher Christian calls her Isabella after his hot cousin he wanted to marry. That pretty good. Which makes sense. Um, there's eight extra men, eight indigenous men. <laughs> it's not problematic at it's all. It's not problematic at all. Hi, guys. Welcome aboard. And then 10, quote, adventurous <laughs> and energetic boys. Yes. And after they set sail from Tahiti on their way wow. to build Fort George in Tabui, they realize that they also have a stowaway a young teenage chief, Chief yeah. Hitty Hitty from Bora Bora. Which, that means that we now have Captain Edward Edwards. Okay. And Chief 
Hitty Hitty from Bora Bora. I'm just saying, if it's like, it's like there's yeah. an echo in here. And this kid, apparently, he yeah. does this. He's young. Mm. He had traveled for a while with Captain Cook. He liked to sneak aboard the ships of these Europeans and tag along as long as he could. And he had asked Fletcher Christian if he could come, and he was like, no. And so he hid <laughs> aboard, and now he's going to do it. So they build Fort George, and they try... They try, Fletcher Christian, the mutineers, to make life onto Boahi. They've they got the thing, and, the, and they build a moat, <laughs> right? But there are several problems with Tabuahi, okay? That's what you want. <laughs> exactly. Here's a problem one is, and this is serious, the mosquitoes are the worst. And the mosquitoes come out at night. And it turns out there's a reason why the inhabitants of this island didn't set up fucking shop on that side. And it's because there's just too many goddamn bucks. The mosquitoes are killer, right? <laughs> the other problem with Tabuahi and where they have built Fort George is that the people in general, even the ones who aren't trying to kill them, are kind of unhygienic compared to the European standards. They don't bathe a lot, and it's kind of gross. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean you don't want to fuck the women. And good news, the women of Tabuahi are absolutely down with fucking. The problem is they only, <laughs> they only will fuck at their place. These Tabuahi women will not come to Fort George. They won't live with us. They won't be our women like the women in Tahiti were, right? I don't get to wake up with Man. her. Come on, right? <laughs> and... And finally, after getting Ooh, attacked yeah, yeah. and they have all of this violence, Fletcher Christian and the indigenous people he's gotten so far and the mutineers are like, I think we should go. I think there's there's a lot of islands around here. Some are going to be better. Some are worse. But like Tabuahi, <laughs> Tabuah sucks. We, right? This is not good though. This is right. This is this is not good. And so this is when they put it to a vote. And and just true to form, our guy Fletcher Christian's like, okay, hey man, you don't like it. Uh I'm gonna go. I'm definitely leaving, and I'm gonna take bounty with me. Um, and if anyone wants to, I'll drop you off wherever you want, and I'm gonna go off and search for something better. And this is what the folks who tell Edward Edwards is when we got dropped off in Tahiti to wait for you. And they went their way. So the, it was our already sort of like the guilty and the innocent was our idea. But obviously you didn't see it that way. It is time, my good friend Scott, oh, to join hands, sip whatever whiskey we have left, and follow the man, Fletcher Christian. The year is 1808. It's 20 years after Fletcher Christian was last heard of, okay? The people who actually knew him last saw him about 25 years ago when he left London. And the last anybody who has been accounted for saw of him, it's been 20 plus years he sailed out in the middle of nowhere. No one's seen the boat and no one has seen any of them mutineers. And one day, an American ship called the Topaz uh, has a captain named William Folger, and he stumbles upon this isolated island in the middle of fucking nowhere, which is saying a lot when you're in the ocean. 
really in the middle of nowhere. Like there's no little mm. islands around this. <laughs> there is nothing within sight. This thing is as isolated as an island can be, and it's bright green. It looks like heaven. And so he clearly <laughs> goes ashore. Mm. And when he gets ashore, he's checking out. See what this is. He is met by a community of people <laughs> that are super white, super welcoming. They speak English. They are practicing Christians. There is only one adult male. And it's an adult white male. There are nine Polynesian women and 26 mixed blood children, the oldest of whom is about 18. <laughs> now, keep in mind, this is an American ship, so they have even less context <laughs> than maybe anyone else in the ocean might have been, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so they are like what the fuck who the fuck <laughs> why the fuck right and eventually people that know are like who is this white guy is it fletcher christian how'd they get here if that's not him where are the rest of the mutineers and it is that question that you and i are about to answer let's just reestablish our timeline for a real for a hot minute the mutiny happened in April of 1789. Five months later, our buddy uh, uh, William, he abandons Tabuahi in September of 1789. And it's the, where do we go? And, and, and they have picked up these women, the indigenous men, and they are just on a boat, just left, nothing there, right? <laughs> nope, nothing there. The indigenous people are like, I know kind of some places we definitely should not go. <laughs> and they're like, okay, well, that's kind of helpful. And in the midst of all this, Fletcher Christian is going through all of William Bly's uh, stuff. He's looking through his papers and his charts and his books to see if there's anything he can use to yep. help him out. And in the pages of one of these charts, he finds this itty-bitty dot of an island that is already called Pitcairn Island, it was apparently named after some 15-year-old sailor who had first spotted it, and his last name was Pitcairn. When <laughs> they were like, great, that's its name. But otherwise, nobody knew anything about it. <laughs> Roughly where it was, it got the name of this kid who first saw it. And it was believed that it was uninhabited, and it was believed that it would have fresh water and maybe some kind of life-sustaining stuff mm -hmm. on it. You know, you talked earlier about the comparisons to the outer space and the moon landing. I mean, this is definitely astronauts yep. in outer space finding a habitable planet, you know? Oh, yeah. You don't say no to that. You don't. Yeah, absolutely. You don't say no to that. So he's like, okay, everybody, this is where we're going to go. Everybody in. And they're like, well, I guess, you know. So he does essentially a zigzag pattern Kind of like, oh, it's super cold. I think we've gotten closer to the Arctic. Okay, warmer. Now we go left, 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 west, west, up, over, over. I mean, it is a very imprecise science, but he kind of thinks he knows ballpark where it should be. Mm. And they are out here for weeks, just like every other ship of people for weeks. Eventually you're getting hungry. People are getting pissed off. And then, oh, oh my God, he spots it. 
they find Pitcairn Island and they're like, fuck. Now this place, this island seems like a place that you would visit, Scott. I feel like, have you ever been to Pitcairn Island? Oh, no, no, no. I've... I've been on I've been on the South Pacific cruises and I've been to some interesting little islands, but not Pitcairn. I don't think it's very small. Like I've been to Vanuatu and I've been to Fiji and I've been to yeah places like that. Yeah, so I imagine like I can readily imagine what it was like having seen lots of those places. Oh, and Amazing. the images really are jaw dropping. It is, and when you say it's small, it is one mile by one and a half miles, which is about 1.6 kilometers by about two and a half kilometers. It's hmm. teeny, teeny tiny, and but lucky strike that they find it. Needle in a haystack stuff. They're all very excited. And the first hmm. problem is just landing the goddamn boat they can't they keep trying like okay there it is we can't get the the surf and the wind kind of conspire against that there's just no way to get close enough to drop an anchor there's nothing to catch there's no shore that you can paddle i mean they are just getting hammered and yet as this hammering and the impossibility of like getting to shore continues to evolve they're like super thrilled by it because this means one Ain't nobody else going to be able to super easily get on shore and get us. So this is kind of great yep. for us once we figure it out. And two, we've been fucking getting slapped out here for ages and nobody's thrown any rocks at us. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's a tiny island. If anyone could, and we've got, they're, if they're up there, they could get right up above us, you know. So that's yeah. kind of good too. So it makes it like even more appetizing, right? Eventually, they finally get a break and they're able to anchor, get ashore. And they can see fairly quickly that there were people here. There are some drawings. There's some cave drawings, some writings on the rock. There are paths. They're super mm -hmm. overgrown, but there are like distinguishable paths through the woods. Um, they can see gardens, maybe some like evidence that there were gardens, but it doesn't take long because it's a tiny ass place to realize there's nobody there. Um, and, and that the third problem is there's no more problems. That's it. This place is actually as perfect as it gets. And Fletcher Christian, I like to imagine that he comes running on board just, <laughs> You know, his sail uniform is long gone. He is just like, you're welcome, sluts. We did it. Um, and let me just give you, too, how right he is. I would like everyone to get a pen and write down what they realize. Oh, my God. When they get aboard Pitcairn and really start walking around, girl, there are no mosquitoes. None. There are paper mulberry trees for making cloth. There's candle nut trees for light. There's pandanus palms for thatching. There's lots of fish, shellfish, lobsters. There's egg-laying birds everywhere. And there's fresh water, clean, fresh, clear water. And between what's on that island and what's on the boat, there's coconuts, breadfruit, surprise. Exactly. Mangoes, plantains, oranges, sweet potatoes, hogs, chickens. <laughs> Woo! I mean, they can't get away. Everybody gets a coconut. <laughs> you get a coconut. You get a coconut. Everybody gets a coconut. I'm not like that jerk after Bly. I don't care if you eat Mike. It's crazy. And they've got chickens and hogs and goats. Who can now multiply? My God. There are 28 mouths to feed. 15 men. 12 women and a little baby girl. 
And if you think that the mutineers were fucking stoked about like <laughs> what this miracle island just delivered, stop for a moment to consider the founding mothers of Pitcairn Island. And man, Scott, I am so obsessed with the founding mothers of Pitcairn Island. It has been a real labor for me not to go headfirst into these sluts from the moment that they sort of started tagging along <laughs> into the story. But I just, you had mentioned the that there was like sort of a free, um, free love sort of thing happening in Tahiti, like compared okay. to like what London was like, which is, is a little bit more accurate now. I think, and probably in the decades that some of the later colonists came. But at the time that the bounty was there, that was not the case. Tahiti and life in Tahiti really sucked for women. Um, mm. They None of these women, by the way, were kidnapped. All of the women who went aboard the bounty were given a choice, wanted to go, had something that we would describe as love, affection, devotion, something mm. like that, to either the men they went with or just the idea of leaving Tahiti. Mm. Because life on Tahiti, for women, it sucked. It had a three-tiered class system that in many ways reflected the three-tiered class system on the ships. And it was sort of a serendipitous thing. You had your highborn, your middleborn, and your lowborn. And the highborn had fairer skin. The lowborn had darker skin. Mm. And the women were permitted to sleep with the Europeans that came aboard, but only by class and by the permission of their men. So lowborn women could sleep with lowborn sailors. Wrong. Your your high-born women could only sleep with the captains and only Cook and Bly had ever been there. And both of them were like, thank you, no. Thank you, yeah. no. We're, we're <laughs> fine. Um, as children in Tahiti, boys and girls were both deliberately malfigured. Girls' heads were pressed. Their foreheads oh, were okay. pressed to make them flatter. The boys had their necks um, elongated. Until they menstruated, girls learned the same tools, like how to make fish hooks and how to cook and stuff like that as the boys did. But as soon as they menstruated, they were tattooed to indicate it and were oh. now forbidden from touching or eating most of the food and, mo and all of the best food. Yeah. Okay. So um, this is not something I had dinner. any understanding of at all. Oh, uh, right. I, this is one of the things that this, the truth about the mutiny on the bounty mm. was so illuminating. These, the, at dinner, the custom was at dinner that the ma males were the only ones who could touch the food. And so they would prepare and eat all the food. And all the women could do was dance lasciviously for them. Well, some things were good. So it was okay. There was like, yeah, perks along the way. <laughs> and one of the reasons why this would have been invisible is because, of course, historians don't care about the mm. domestic lives of indigenous people in general, and they care even less about the women, right? So these sort of elements would have been sort of overlooked or completely misunderstood because... Mm. So there was this mystery among historians for centuries as to why there weren't more white European children in the Tahitian and Polynesian islands. Because God Ooh. knows they were fucking these women constantly. And oh, the women yeah, were yeah. sort of given somewhat freely. But there weren't a ton of children that came from it. And the oh. general answer to that question was, well, um, Indonesian women just ovulate less. 
which they don't ovulate less. They have clearly a grasp on contraception, abortion. Tahitian women. Yes. Contraception, abortion, and infant side. So the way that it sort of worked at that time in the Tahitian culture was that most girl children were murdered at birth, infant side. What? Any boy that was in any way small, deformed, had crossed class lines or was disliked at all. Hmm. And so because of the high levels of infanticide for undesirable children, Tahitian women had, of course, mastered contraception and or abortion. The reasons, and they're like, how do, what evidence, (laughs) this was a question I listened Hmm. to a historian talk about, what evidence do we have? And the answer is the proof is in, no pudding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you think about, you know, that's the proof. There's no pudding. That, I mean, first of all, if a woman had a girl, and let's just say the girl lived, you as a mother and Tahiti were sort of enslaved to your girl children because you were the only one who could touch or prepare their food. They had to get all God. of their food only from you. So it became this like crazy until they were married, they depended entirely on you. And of course you had to do all this other stuff, all of this to say, <laughs> Oh, and it's of note, like, Oh, what proof do we have that, that these women were good at contraception and abortion was that they were aboard the bounty with 12 women for eight months mm. and no one got pregnant or had a baby. God. When they arrive on the island of Pitcairn, 10 months later, the first baby is born. And what do you know? It's the son of Fletcher Christian, the boss. So the boss and his wife have the first baby. Uh All of this, again, you know, you just kind of go. So keeping that in mind, knowing what you just learned about like how Tahitian women's life has changed when they got on board with the mutineers. Consider this other mystery that seemed to evade people was, who burned the bounty to ashes less than a week after they arrived on Pitcairn Island? It was like a controversy among the Fletcher Christian mutineers was like, okay, we got to this island that obviously there's no way to get away from except for that one little Mm. boat. And in less than seven days, it goes up in flames. And apparently because of the tar in the hull, it was a glorious flame. And it had been cleaned out, emptied out before it was caught on fire. And everybody blamed this guy Quintal. He seemed like a real kind of live wire and he didn't want to leave. And There was like murmurings. It must have been him, but he denied it. No one ever figured it out. And again, this historian was like, it seems obvious to me that it was the women. Because because Fletcher Christian had said, all right, everybody's here and good. I'm going to go. I'm going to take the bounty and I'm going to go back to England, turn myself in because I've got a bit of a guilty conscience. And then that way they'll stop hunting you guys down. And I think that the women were like, no, if you leave. That's not happening, Fletcher. Right. Anyway, it is it is, you know, a mystery. And any and they have all these babies. Uh, people are having babies, but of course I told you that list of things that are perfect about Pitcairn. Right. I mean, oh my god, no mosquitoes. You could have stopped there. No mosquitoes, fresh water and all these women. Like, come on. The problem one is 
yes, this is still a democracy. And yes, they still stick to that voting stuff, but only mm. for the white guys. Real fast. Yeah. These six pounds the men, even the high-born indigenous men, are given no land and are forced into servitude to the whites yeah, and have no basically vote. enslaved. Yeah. Quickly. Problem mm. two is that even among the white guys, a lot of these white guys, this is they went from like, I will never have anything ever to I am a landed gentry mm. <laughs> on an island. They don't need Fletcher Christian's protection anymore. And the kind of natural erosion of like, you have more than I have, you have a better plot than I have starts to take hold. Mm. And then the third one, the huge one, the linchpin, is that if you did a head count, man, <laughs> when I told you it was on board, there aren't enough women for everyone. No. And the women prefer the white men. Remember that social structure that they came from is still sort yep. of caught in their teeth. And it is of note that they have no children with the Polynesian men. None mm. of them do. Even if they are lovers or domestic, uh, share domestic houses with these men or whatever. Yeah. And eventually, of course, <laughs> between these like perpetual celibate enslavement just doesn't feel quite <laughs> like the paradise island that we were sold on. Yeah. It's not going to cut it for these guys. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they rise up. And if you can believe it, <laughs> in a mutiny against mm. the Europeans on what is called Massacre Day, it's nuts, man. All the women, again, all the women happen to be out gathering eggs. Mm -hmm. um, except for Mao uh, uh, Tua, which is Fletcher Christian's mm -hmm. wife. She is not gathering eggs because she's having a baby in their hut. And Fletcher right. Christian is right outside the hut pulling up roots from a tree. And one of these, one of the indigenous guys goes to Mills, one of the white Europeans, and asks mm. in what is a reflection of the mutiny, can I have a gun? <laughs> I need it to go shoot a pig for our dinner. I just want to make you the best this... dinner possible. You're going to love this. <laughs> and somehow he misses out on that. <laughs> actually, what's crazy is he gives him the gun, and the guy actually goes to the next landowner and kills that guy and then gets his enslaved people to come with him. And I mean, they attack quickly. Um, they slaughter almost all of the white European men that day, including Fletcher Christian, who is shot in the back and then hit about his head with axes. He apparently doesn't die immediately because one of the other guys hears the moaning and thinks it's the moaning of his wife going into labor. <laughs> oh, right. <sighs> One of the guys uh, who survives is named John Adams and, uh, and another guy named Young. And it's, and it's believed that they were spared. They were tipped off by the women because they were both hiding and not where they were supposed to be. And oh, okay. they were the nicest guys. They were the least violent. They never hit anybody when they were drunk. They were like the sweetest, gentlest guys, which, you know, <laughs> take that for natural selection. You know what I mean? The women yeah, were yeah. like... We want to keep the nice guys and I want you to kill all the warriors. That would Dickens. be great. <laughs> exactly. 
And, you know, the families keep growing until that 1808 arrival of the American ship that finally got filled in. And, you know, I I was thinking about this, like, what is the moral? And, like, on the one hand, I feel like because Fletcher Christian ultimately dies as the result of the uprising of unhappy men who are being treated unjustly, I kind of feel like you could look at this whole thing and be like, it's a live by the sword, die by the sword kind of moral, you know? Mm, Yeah. But at the same time, Within a year of that bloody massacre, they had achieved a real peace on that island. (laughs) One of the ways that the women did it was that anytime the guys got nuts or violent or mean, they would take all of their kids and just disappear up into the hills where they couldn't find them. And the men would be like, God damn it. (laughs) It's not, you know, it's not like a cruise ship comes in every couple of weeks. We have nothing, you know. And when the British, eventually they are recognized as an autonomous area. And some of the first women on planet Earth, Scott, to have the right to vote and a compulsory education for women and girls was the women of Pitcairn Island. So maybe the lesson is mutinies do work. (laughs) Just in a roundabout way. Or, you know, if you can't be a mutineer, definitely fuck one. (laughs) And then the real irony at the end of all this, the thing that had me on my feet, they get the breadfruit eventually through a bunch of other captains, including Captain Bly, they get the goddamn breadfruit to the Caribbean. Oh, God. And they won't eat it. They hate it. They won't eat it. was the the hilfing of the mutiny on the bounty scott it has been a joy i've had a ball thank you so much (laughs) come on oh that was such an incredible journey and i'm so glad that you were along for the ride Now go check out Scott and his book, Lightbulb Moments in Human History. You will find links to all of it in our show notes. Now the next new episode also involves some pirates of a sort, looking for independence in a way. It's the history of the Conk Republic, the pseudo-autonomous state encompassing the Florida Keys. And it's a hilarious story with the hilarious guest, comedian Forrest Shaw, who is also the co-host of I Don't Know About That with Jim Jeffries. Until then, our theme song was composed and performed by Kat Perkins. A reminder that you can find my sources, links to the books, documentaries, and articles I reference in the summary of this episode, or by emailing us, hilfpodcast at gmail.com, or messaging us on social media at hilfpodcast. (laughs) This has been Hilf. History I'd like to fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody, reminding you that history is a party and everybody's coming. <laughs> <sighs>